So this morning I'd like to talk uh, about the Trinity as the model, the image of God that emerges from the story of Holy Week. And I think we're at a clearly a, a sort of a turning point in the history of the world with our global consciousness, with the uh, amazing acceleration of communication that takes, has taken place through the internet, through the, we could say, the, the universalizing of uh, the idea of human rights, even though this is not always applied, but the idea is, is there in everyone's mind. And uh, we live in a, a world that's being shaped and human relationships are being shaped more and more by the technologies that we have created. Raymond Panica, sorry I didn't mention his name to you, but Raymond Panica was a great uh, student of religion, a philosopher, thinker of the last century. And for him, we are at a turning point, as he says, in the adventure of reality. And reality, according to the American philosopher William James, is where we place our attention. So where we really focus our attention is reality for us. And perhaps this is why the contemplative consciousness is so important for us to understand and to teach and to protect today. Because without this capacity to pay attention, we very easily become distracted because of all the entertainment, all of the information, all of the activity, all of the travel, everything that we can do that is <coughs> so wonderful uh, can easily become a, a major destructive uh, conglomerate of forces. And I was reading, many of you may have read also a, a book called Sapiens, which is one of these books that comes along every, about every 10 years and it gives you, you know, a very interesting overview of humanity, the history of humanity. So in this book, uh, the author, his name escapes me at the moment, I can't pronounce it, He's Israeli, I know, I can't remember. Yasser, 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 not Yasser Arafat, but um, anyway, something like that. So, uh, 
So he, he, he gives us a very brilliant and erudite uh, overview of the, the evolution of humanity. And it's had a remarkable uh, success. But as I was reading it, I began to become a little disturbed by what it left out. And not only does he leave out the spiritual dimension, but he dismisses religion as if it were something just another function of developing a socio-economic society. And I think he describes religion as the way in which we can make stories, myths, fables, which uh, unite the tribe, unite people. Well, it's an easy way of dismissing uh, religion um, from the dawn of history uh, in two sentences. But interestingly, he also, as far as I can uh, see, completely misses and ignores the creation of art, of beauty, the Beethovens and the Shakespeare's uh, of humanity, and the Michelangelo's. This doesn't have a place in, in the, the story of humanity, because it's not directly measurable or part of the socio-economic uh, evolution. So when I noticed that, uh, it, the, his, his erudition and his, uh, his big vision began to seem very limited. And it led him, I, th I would think, to a, uh, a very pessimistic view of humanity at this turning point in our adventure of reality. Because uh, without this dimension, humanity kind of loses interest in itself. We don't see our capacity for transcendence, for uh, uh, understanding the world in which we find ourselves. And in some ways we could say, the, in the world which we make conscious by being human. Then I didn't read the second book in his, uh, uh, in, in his work, which is called um, Homo Deus. Um, but I think it's an extension of the conclusion of his first book, which is that now humanity, facing all its failures, all its dysfunctionality, is now capable, through science, of recreating itself. We can now remake humanity, not only to, in order to uh, control genetic diseases, uh, 
and so on. But also, as he says, I think irresponsibly, uh, to decide what we desire. So in other words, we completely think that we can remake our humanity. This is a, this is a growing uh, idea in much of modern uh, thought <coughs> and science. And it's uh, rather similar to the story of the Tower of Babel in, uh, in the Bible. When humanity, at a very prosperous moment, the, the, the people of Babel had everything. And they decided then to go that one step further and reach, reach heaven by building a great, a great physical tower. And, of course, the tower fell and, um, and the people were, conf were confused by the many languages uh, that, that God gave them. The story uh, seems to imply that the multiplicity of languages is a, is, is a, is a, is a, is a punishment. And um, that's why we have our translations, uh, translations here. If it weren't for Babel, we wouldn't need Helen and Debbie. Um, but there's another way of, uh, certainly it's inconvenient that we have these different languages. But it's also a great enrichment because every language is another way of looking at reality. And it's very difficult for us to, to get into another language or into another culture, into another religious belief system. It's very difficult for us to see through the eyes of another but it's a wonderful work to try to do, to dialogue, to step back from our own point of view so that we can truly see things differently. And I think we would all feel a certain sadness when we hear that, I forget what the number is, but every day a certain number of languages dies out in the human family. <coughs> and each of these languages, they may not be as sophisticated as French or English, but uh, each of them represents a, a unique expression of experience and understanding. So, this idea that that now we can reinvent ourselves uh, through technology is, I think, not only deeply um, depressing that, that we as human beings are in such a sad state and so unhappy with ourselves and our relationship to the world that we've decided to kind of commit a sort of collective suicide and reinvent ourselves. It's not only, and you wonder what message this sends 
to children, to the next generation. Uh, not only is it uh, depressing and I think disrespectful to the, the real achievement of humanity, but it's also foolish because it's not going to, not going to be possible. The Tower of Babel will collapse. So we are, as Panaka said, at this turning point in the adventure of reality. And I think what can emerge from Holy Week for us as we reflect on the story of Jesus in the last hours and minutes of his life is an understanding of the human condition, what it means to be human. And it offers us this affirmation of humanity and of the potential of the human. And surprisingly, it does this by, even as it describes the, uh, what we might think of as the worst that could happen to a human being. Rejection, suffering, and death. But even in the way we enter into the story of, of the passion of Jesus, we understand the, the meaning of suffering and we understand that death is part of this mystery of life. So, uh, at this turning point in our human adventure, we are confronting, on the one hand, <coughs> the forces of globalization, the world is becoming a village, we are told. Um, but that's uh, a, a claim that I think we, we would feel uh, increasingly unhappy with. And certainly the other side of globalization, the other side of globalization is, uh, is a, is a a rejection and a reaction against those forces that are that are uniting uh, humanity, at least in its infrastructure, its technology, and its uh, e economy. The reaction against globalization certainly includes terrorism. When you look at the, the, you know, the, the sources or the roots of terrorism, it comes very often from uh, small or societies that have been crushed by geopolitics uh, or by uh, economic uh, forces. We just have to look at the Middle East, which was, in, in a way, an invention 
of the last days of the British Empire, when they drew lines on a map without any respect for uh, existing cultures or languages or, or traditions, and then, and then walked away and left the people to live with the with this mess that they have had created. So. In, in contrast to globalization, we have this assertion of local identity. And in, in all of uh, our affluent societies, developed world, we have a, a strong reaction against economic and technological uh, globalization, particularly uh, in the way that this uh, uh, pollutes or threatens to destroy our environment. Here we are sitting in uh, Bonvo, in this small piece of land which we discovered is remarkably pure and unpolluted. And the local uh, Natur uh, Vienne, the local uh, environmental agency, um, fascinated by the biodiversity of the of the land here at Bombo, and we're even talking about it as a point to regenerate the uh, environment uh, in this region. So they they're coming in. Uh, I think in the next couple of days to look at the different varieties of orchids that, uh, that, that have, are flourishing here. So here is Bombo, a very a local community rooted in a particular piece of earth, but also a center of a, a global community, global and local. And it's this connection between the, the, the real, physical, global community and the, the global uh, communication and the global uh, friendship that we can share through technology and travel. This seems to me to be one of the major forces of hope in this turning point that we are, we find ourselves in today. And um, we've, we've noticed this also in our own community and through the development of online meditation groups. These are very popular now and they serve a very good purpose particularly for people who, who are sort of isolated meditators physically, uh, people who can't get out for different reasons of time or travel. Uh, this capacity to meditate together online is, is, a, is a blessing. But at the same time, it's, I don't think it is a replacement or even uh, <coughs> even of equal value 
to the experience of being together in person, to meditate together. It's certainly valuable, but it's not the same. Having a Skype conversation with someone is wonderful if you want to communicate uh, more directly and uh, see the expression on their face as they talk, uh, or you haven't seen them for a long time. But it's not the same as, as you know, going to the trouble and the expense of, of, of making the trip to, to be with them in person. So one of the essential questions that we have to ask ourselves today in this moment of our adventure is what do we have in common and what is unique about us? And one of the things we have in common is that we are all unique. It's not, uh, it's not a, a contradiction. The human condition is described in the passion narrative and in it any human being could recognize uh, a deep resonance with the uh, experience that Jesus is undergoing. The wisdom of humanity is present in this story not only psychological, the biological things we have in common, but the wisdom, which is the ability to see connections, the ability to... This problem? Okay, let's hold it close. So, uh, so not only in the passion narrative do we see the, uh, the, the questions of suffering, physical and psychological, but we also see the presence of a deep wisdom, a universal wisdom, which arises from a mystical consciousness, we might say, or the spiritual dimension that I've been speaking about. And this is not abstract, because when this mystical consciousness is awakened, we begin to live a contemplative life. We find that we can live life day to day in ordinary... What's the matter? Not loud enough. Okay, maybe you hold it closer. Is that? Is that better? Silva, Pascal. Okay, okay. So, so um, what we see in the in the passions narrative is. 
uh, an understanding of the human condition that we all have in common, uh, but understood in the light of this, contempt of this spiritual dimension. And one of the things that emerges from it is an image of God or an understanding of God. And it emerges in the, uh, in the, uh, in the sayings and the uh, prayer of Jesus, especially evident in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is, uh, uh, that is, is the story of his life and teaching and his death and resurrection, uh, which on the one hand seems to uh, remind us of the humanity of Jesus. We see him tired after a, a hard day's walking. We see him sad. We see him suffering. We see him grieving. Uh, for a friend who has died, we see him thirsty. So we see many examples of his humanity. But also, in the same gospel, we have the, the highest kind of theology or Christology, <coughs> where Jesus, or the words of Jesus in the gospel, uh, manifest his deepest identity as the, if you like, the divine, <coughs> the divine nature that, um, that he enjoys or that he, he lives with. Throughout the gospel, Jesus identifies himself with the Father. When the Dalai Lama commented on the gospels uh, in The Good Heart, uh, Sister Eileen O'Hay uh, asked him, if you could meet Jesus, what question would you like to ask him? And he replied, he replied immediately, uh, what is the nature of the Father? And it took us all by surprise. First of all, that, that he had already formulated this question, and secondly, that it's a question that not many Christians uh, have ever thought about. And um, so what is the nature of the Father? Jesus says that he has come from the Father, he is returning to the Father, that everything he says is is, is, a, is a communication of the Father. He is sent by the Father. His works, what he does, is a manifestation of the Father. So forget about the, the, the male image here. Uh, what is the Father? Well, perhaps we could say the Father is the ground of being, the ultimate source which we are aware of but cannot see, cannot identify, that has no boundaries. And yet, this uh, 
fatherhood or, or parenthood of, of God in the language of Jesus is intimate, tender, loving, kind. Remember the, the, the story of the prodigal son, the father's loving, forgiving gentleness to the prodigal son. And so Jesus tells us in chapter 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. We could have another long retreat on the meaning of that phrase, keep my word. And if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we shall come to him <coughs> and make our home with him. We will come to him and make our home with him. This image of, of the Father with Jesus coming into the human soul and, and creating a home there uh, reminds us of uh, the language of Julian of Norwich, one of the great English medieval mystics who speaks about uh, exactly about uh, God being at home in us in a very domestic kind of way. And Jesus uses this uh, image of home uh, many times in his, even in his most um, elevated uh, teachings. So a little later he says, to his disciples, make your home in me as I make mine in you. Make your home in me. Be at home with me. Be at ease with me. Be relaxed with me. I mean, what does it mean to be at home or to make a home? It's to create, it's to make a place which is comfortable, which is which is welcoming, which where you feel yourself. So Jesus is saying, be at home, make your home um, in me, and I will do the same in you. We will be at home together. And, um, and for Jesus, this home-making of God in the human is, um, is the nature of the Father. And from this relationship of Jesus and the Father in us comes the gift of the Spirit. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who issues or comes from the Father, he will be my witness, or she will be my witness. <laughs> so, we already can see, 
the, the, the elements, the essential elements <coughs> of, the, of the Christian image of God, which is the unique uh, contribution of Christianity to the human search for God, this understanding of God as a trinity, as a communion, or you could say as a home, with Father, Son and Spirit, again, forget about the, the gender uh, identity of those words, Father and Son, but where Father, Son and Spirit form a, a family, or form a home, a community, and that is the, that is the nature of God. So, this arises directly from the experience of Jesus that he describes as his knowledge of the Father. He speaks from this experience, and as he speaks, he creates this new understanding. And we are the result of that, and we pass that on. And so, uh, later in the uh, Last Supper, Jesus gives this great prayer, offers this great prayer uh, of unity to the Father. Holy Father, keep those you have given me true to your name. So, as his disciples, we already have a relationship to the Father. We have only come to Jesus in whatever way we may have found him or understand him, but we have only had this relationship with Jesus because of the will of the Father, because this has happened from this ground of being that we all uh, live in. So it's, part, it's, a, it's a deep, integral meaning of our life. Keep those you have given me true to your name so that they may be one like us. So the consequences of this image of God are to be found in the way we live together. That the way human beings live should be, uni uni should be in unity. In peace, where there is unity, there is peace. Where there is peace, there is justice. So this image of God as Trinity, as revealed by Jesus, has a, a, a dramatic impact upon the way we see human life and human society. And then at, at the end of this uh, great passage uh, as he prays for us, for humanity and all humanity, he says, may they all be one, Father, may they all be one in us. So our unity is not a separate unity, it's a unity in the Father, in the unity of the Father and the Son. Mm -hmm. 
So here you have, we are included now in the Trinity. We are enfolded in the Trinity, in the life of God. As you are in me, and I am in you. So the way we are in unity is a direct reflection and a participation in the life of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, that is communicated and expressed and sustained by the Spirit. And this is, this gives us a sense of what the word, this gives us a sense of what the word glory means. We hear this word, we'll hear it a lot over the next few days, la gloire, glory. And uh, when we think of glory, we think of, I don't know, the, uh, the, the Oscar, the Hollywood Oscar ceremonies or um, coronation <coughs> of the Queen or the Pope or uh, you know, some, some worldly, uh, worldly glory and celebrity and power. But clearly, it's the, the word glory has a different meaning here. The glory of God, according to St. Irenaeus and Irene, is the human being who is fully alive. And St. Irenaeus goes on, the life of the human being is the vision of God. So the glory of God is the human being fully alive, but the life of the human being is the vision uh, of God. So we'll, we'll come back to this uh, uh, idea of the Trinity uh, this afternoon. Um, and to look at some of the ways in which it has uh, been part of the human understanding and search for God from the very beginning. We find this concept or this seed of the Trinity in, in all the major uh, streams of wisdom in humanity. But what we can what we can see, I think, is that uh, the, the the passion and the death of Jesus show us something. They manifest something in an unexpected way. This is not a story of success and human flourishing and what we normally mean by happiness. This is the end of a good life of an innocent person in a terrible way. And every aspect of that end uh, touches our hearts with, with, with grief and, and pity. So if the manifestation of God can be made in this dark and uh, painful aspect of the human condition, 
this is something we should really listen to carefully because it's revealing the whole meaning of life. Nothing is excluded from it. And it shows us not an abstract idea of God, a philosophical idea of God, but a rather shocking idea of God, certainly for our uh, sister religions uh, in, the, in the biblical tradition, Jewish and the Islamic uh, faiths, this idea of the, the Trinity is, is quite shocking. And it seems to be a, uh, a, a betrayal, almost, of the revelation of the unity of God. So it's, it's, uh, it's a controversial and challenging revelation. And for us too, I think for, many, for most Christians, our image of God is not Trinitarian. We think of God uh, as, you know, one great entity sitting alone uh, at a great distance and uh, judging us or um, uh, observing us uh, with a rather cold eye. And at the same time we're told that this is a loving God. But, but this single image of God is not a very loving image. We have to force ourselves to, to think of that kind of God as really loving. Um, so I think for many Christians too, the, this revelation of, of God that comes through Jesus and in an intense way through the story of his, uh, the end of his life, um, this is a, this is a challenge, but like all challenges, an opportunity for, uh, for growth and new understanding. So let's end. Uh, I just lost it. Let's end with uh, a little extract from the last great prayer of Jesus at the Last Supper. <laughs> Listen, the time will come. In fact, it has come already when you will be scattered each of you going your own way and, and you will leave me alone and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me and I've told you all this so that you may find peace in me in the world you will have trouble but be brave because I have conquered the world.